Uh, it comes from the book of John. Uh, this is chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And our sermon text today comes from Numbers, chapter 11. And I will be reading verses 16 through 32. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people, and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourself for tomorrow. And you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month, until it becomes out of your nostrils and, you become, and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why do we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, The people among whom I am are 600,000 on foot, and you have said I will give them meat, that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them, and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them, and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the clouds and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing so. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered. They had not gone out of the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, stop them. But Moses said to them, Are you jealous for my sake? With it all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea. And let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp. And about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all that night and all the next day and gathered the quail. There were gathered at least two homers and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. So uh, two weeks ago, uh, Dr. Kress preached from uh, 1 Corinthians 14. 
And I was struck by a verse that said, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, uh, as I am somewhat notorious for long sermons, uh, I want to assure you that now that we are outside in the summer of North Carolina, that I have taken Paul's words to heart. So we will attempt to uh, shorten these sermons a bit. Uh, Back in the 90s, there was a rivalry, uh, some of you may remember, in the world of hip-hop between the L.A.-based West Coast rappers and the New York-based East Coast rappers. Now, West Coast rap was far more dominant, and the East Coast artists felt somewhat rejected as they were overlooked by the record labels. This was despite the fact that, uh, as we know, rap music originated in block parties in New York in the 70s. But things were changing, and one record producer in New York, uh, Sean Puff Daddy Combs, uh, founded a label and led to the commercial success of several New York-based artists, and thus the East Coast-West Coast hip-hop rivalry was born. Now, we have a a similar, uh, maybe less... uh, Not quite as much uh, rivalry here at Resurrection Church between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, between Chris and I. Uh, And in a similar way, uh, Lucia, or correction, Little Miss uh, Lucia M., as I like to refer to her, has called Chris and I out on the subject of the Holy Spirit. And uh, Chris has produced a wonderful series of sermons from the New Testament, but now it is time for the Old Testament to respond Much like the East Coast, the Old Testament is where it all started, but is often somewhat overlooked and overshadowed by the more popular New Testament. But we hope in the next few weeks I'm going to kick it old school, as they say, as we work through the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. All right, now after probably the worst introduction in sermon histories. um, (laughs) now, Now, it may seem odd to look at the Old Testament to study the Holy Spirit. After all, the Holy Spirit seems more of a New Testament thing, that Jesus announces his coming in the Gospels and then arrives in Acts at Pentecost. And this is very understandable. And part of the point of the sermon today is to take issue with that notion. And by doing so, I hope to make a a couple of important, but also really practical points about the Holy Spirit. So, If we were to make a list of prominent ideas in the Old Testament, what might we come up with? Well, if it was me, the first thing I would probably think of is covenant. So that's a pretty important idea in the Old Testament. But uh, maybe we would come up with some other ideas, maybe law or uh, the Torah, maybe blessing. You know, Abraham was called out to be a blessing to the nations. Uh, Maybe even uh, one of our favorite Hebrew words like uh, hesed or shalom. Uh, My my point is that if we were to all get together and brainstorm uh, what what is a prominent theme in the Old Testament, uh, we would probably come up with a lot of good ideas, a lot of important themes. But it is unlikely, I bet, that the Holy Spirit would uh, feature anywhere on our list. But here's the thing. Let me just tell you, give you some uh, stats here, some stats, some facts. The word blessing in Hebrew, of course, is barak. It occurs 71 times in the Old Testament. The word Torah, or law, occurs 223 times. The word shalom, that occurs 237 times. 
Hesed occurs 249 times. And Berit, which is covenant, occurs a whopping 280 times. Now, uh, you're going to uh, know this quite well by the time this series ends, but the Hebrew word for spirit, anyone remember? Ruach, Ruach, yes, Ruach, yes. Anyone want to guess how many times the word Ruach is found in the Old Testament? So you have you have some sort of basis. Anyone want to take a guess? What's that? 600, yeah, you're, you're going in the right direction. It's 389 times. So it's actually much more common than any of those other themes that we've uh, talked about. So based simply on word count, you can actually make the case that the Old Testament places quite a bit of emphasis on the Spirit. Now, we can argue whether or not word frequency is the best measure of importance, but we have at least proven that the Spirit is an important theme in the Old Testament. So the question then is, if ruach is such a common word in the Old Testament scriptures, why don't we pay more attention to the Holy Spirit in the Testament, in the Old Testament? Well, part of the reason is because the word ruach is pretty ambiguous. Uh, and what I mean by that is ruach can actually mean wind, it can mean breath, or spirit. And even spirit is ambiguous because it can mean spirit is in like a vague sense of uh, maybe like the like what we would call the soul or the mind. Or it can mean like God's capital S, Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. Uh, So since no word in our language can encompass all of those meanings, translators make a choice every time they encounter the word ruach in the Old Testament. And so that is why we don't realize how often we come across Ruach in the Old Testament. However, for the original audience of the Old Testament, it was much more obvious because Ruach was everywhere. But what I'm going to hope to show today is that this ambiguity of the word Ruach is not a problem, but I actually think an important point. So what I want to do is examine a passage that's most clearly uh, uh, illustrates this point I want to make because I think it's key to understanding the spirit in the Old Testament. We'll, we'll then uh, begin next week uh, a series taking more or less a chronological approach working our way through the Old Testament. So uh, let us now uh, look at our passage from Numbers. The Ruach just blew my page off. The passage takes place three days after the Israelites had left Mount Sinai. And if you remember, Mount Sinai was where the glory of God was revealed to the people, so much so that they were scared to be near it. And they received the Ten Commandments. They made a covenant with uh, with God, promising to obey all the words that God had spoken to them. This was three days after the construction of the tabernacle, when they watched the glory cloud of God fill the tabernacle. In all of this, the very presence and power and glory of the God was visible. But now the situation is different. The Israelites upset were upset because the food was not that great. Uh, all they had to eat was manna. Now, manna sounds pretty good to me. Uh, it tastes a little like honey. It's baked into bread. So I kind of think of like maybe like that nature's own honey wheat bread, which is like really bad for you, but it's like really good. Um, But after a while, it was getting pretty old. Now, it may seem that that crazy that the Israelites were complaining about food when they had manna in the middle of the desert, 
But if you look back at uh, Numbers 11.5, I didn't include that in our reading. But if you look at Numbers 5, it says that back in Egypt, they had fish, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlic. So that's what their diet was, which, you know, like they were like slaves in Egypt, but that sounds pretty good. Um, but now all they had was manna. So, you know, you know, the Egyptian manna uh, menu sounds pretty good to me. I mean, there were, they had leeks for crying out loud. So, you know, fun fact, Egyptians love Vichy Swa. Uh, but a lot of people are totally blown away that the Israelites so quickly, after being released from slavery, complain about the food. But, you know, after reading this, I can kind of see it. I like food. Nevertheless, uh, Moses, like the parent of a toddler, is totally exasperated at their complaining. And he wants to resign his position as their leader. And what we have in our passage is uh, an account of God's solution to the problem of the people's complaints about the food, as well as Moses' personal issue feeling the crushing burden of leadership. So first, God helps out Moses by appointing 70 elders to assist him in leading the people. To empower these 70 elders, God takes a bit of Moses' spirit, or ruach, and puts it on the 70 elders. And the result is the elders uh, receive the spirit. They temporarily prophesy. However, the spirit does not stop there. The story goes on to tell us that two more people named Eldad and Medad also receive the Ruach and they begin to prophesy. And Joshua seems to be a little disturbed by this, uh, by these other two people prophesying and perhaps out of jealousy, who knows. But Moses tells Joshua, it's great. It would really be great if God's spirit could work in all of God's people. And it is at this point that a wind brings a flock of quail from the sea. The wind piles up so much quail that the quail were stacked up three feet deep. Now that's a lot of quail. But here's the thing, quail's really good. And it's much better than leeks and cucumbers, I think. But here's what I want us to see, though. The word for the wind that brings the quail is also ruach. That's right. Yes. So in this passage, we have two very different incidents where the word ruach is used. In the first case, it seems that the ruach is more spiritual. This is more what we think about when we're thinking about the Holy Spirit. The ruach inspires prophecy. Uh, this seems kind of a weird, the weird, miraculous thing we would expect from the Holy Spirit. So it makes sense to translate Ruach here as spirit. The problem is we are never actually told that this is God's capital S, third person of the Trinity, Holy Spirit. The text says it's Moses' spirit and never refers to it as the spirit of the Lord. It is only called the spirit. But if we look at the incident involving quail, At first blush, we may think this is also straightforward. Quail, as we know, fly using air currents, and so it makes sense that a gust of wind could bring them to the Israelite camp. Certainly the timing and the amount suggest that this is divine, but the the means of uh, uh, achieving this deluge of quail are physical. In any event, it seems clear that Ruach here is wind, caused by the movement of air molecules because of the temper differential between two areas, resulting in sufficient force that it alters the flight of a flock of quail. So it seems natural that we can feel safe in translating Ruach here as wind. But notice what the passage actually says. Unlike the first incident, this is not just the Ruach. 
It is the Ruach of the Lord. And in fact, this actually sounds more like the capital S Holy Spirit, uh, third person of the Trinity than the wind. So, but my point here, and by pointing this out, it, it is not to so much slice and dice everything here, uh, but to point that when we when we put, but to point out that when we when we are translating ruach in this passage, it's much more difficult than we may have eventually thought. In the first case, we have the spirit leading the seventy elders into some sort of visible charismatic activity, but no explicit statement that this is the Holy Spirit of the Lord. In the second case, we have a gust of wind altering the flight of a flock of birds. But in this case, we are told that this is the Holy Spirit of the Lord. So what do we do with this? I think we have to see that this is part of the point. I think far from a linguistic anomaly involving homonyms, what we have is an intentionally ambiguous word making a really important point about the Holy Spirit. Here's the point. We find the spirit, which is we will develop further in future sermons, which is the glorious splendor, the presence of God, in both the extraordinary, like prophecy, and the ordinary, like gusts of wind. The word ruach encompasses both poles of that spectrum. And I think that has two really important and practical implications. So first... We find the Holy Spirit in the miraculous, working in power and might, like with the prophesying elders. That is how we're used to thinking of the action of the Holy Spirit. However, what we learn from Numbers 11 is that we find the Holy Spirit acting in regular physical phenomenon, like wind. And I do not think uh, we're used to thinking of the Holy Spirit in the second way, and as a result, we often miss it. But what Numbers 11 tells us is that we have to expand our view beyond the spiritual and the extraordinary into the physical and the ordinary. God's presence and glory and splendor can be found in the natural world, in the regular, ordinary, physical processes. We need not relegate the spirit only to some rare supernatural event. That is why the Holy Spirit is so often overlooked in our theology. And once someone starts talking about the Holy Spirit, we instantly become nervous, thinking it means people speaking in tongues and other weird things that go on in like charismatic churches or something. However, I would argue that we can see the Holy Spirit as the presence and glory of God when we are even moved by something very ordinary, maybe like a sunset or any number of ways in the ordinary material creation where we see the beauty and majesty of God. Breath and life are more than simple physical processes. They are ruach, the glory and splendor of the God made manifest around us and in us. Which leads to the second implication here. The fact that the word ruach is ambiguous means that there is a mystery to the spirit. Sometimes a gust of wind is just a gust of wind. However, sometimes a gust of wind can be much more. The difference is for those with ears to hear and eyes to see. The mystery means that we have to be open to the possibility of the Spirit working at all times, even in something very ordinary. Even when we are tired of eating leeks and cucumbers and God unexpectedly sends quail. The mystery means something as unspiritual as an unexpected menu item can be 
the Holy Spirit at work. We can see how this mystery plays out in the meeting of Jesus and Nicodemus from our passage in John 3. Nicodemus is a Jewish religious leader. He believes that the signs Jesus had been performing must be from God, but he's also a bit skeptical. Curious to learn more about Jesus' identity, Nicodemus meets Jesus. As usual, it cannot be that uh, simple with Jesus. And so Jesus explains that if Nicodemus wants to understand his identity and what Jesus is about, then Nicodemus must be reborn from above. In other words, only a supernatural reorientation, a divine paradigm shift will answer the questions Nicodemus has come to Jesus with. So we have Jesus using this very, like what we would call mystical language, contrasting the kingdom, which comes from above, and with it, a different level of understanding to the earthly realm, which Nicodemus is currently stuck in. In verse 6, Jesus says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So clearly we have the Holy Spirit identified with this supernatural, divine, heavenly realm of God. However, as Jesus further elaborates this perplexing concept of Nicodemus needed to be born from above, Jesus uses the wind as an illustration. Jesus knows that uh, Nicodemus understands how wind works. It is familiar. It's an earthly, physical phenomenon. But the wind, too, is a bit mysterious. You don't know where it comes from. and You don't know where it's going to go. There's an unpredictability about it, a mystery. Here is the thing. Just as with the Hebrew word ruach, the Greek word for wind and spirit is the same. And while John was written in Greek, it is likely that Jesus and Nicodemus were having this conversation in a different language, Aramaic. But guess what? The word is still the same. So John wants us to see here the wordplay and understand the spirit in terms of wind. So just with our numbers passage, there is a mystery to the spirit. And it's this mystery that Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to understand. So we too, as those who have been born from above, that have been born again, need to understand the spirit is a mystery. And what I think that means is that our view of the spirit needs to be expansive. We don't need to relegate the spirit to the realm of just the rare, miraculous, and the supernatural. If we do so, we often ignore the spirit, and so we do not have ears to hear and eyes to see. And we end up like Nicodemus, who is knowledgeable and religious, but also dense, and merely experiences a brief glimpse of the glory of God. Instead, I think the burden for us is to be open to the work of the spirit anywhere, Uh, Because the whole of creation is filled with the glory of God. That includes both the extraordinary, but also the ordinary. The Holy Spirit is all around us, moving and enlivening the world like the wind in our very breath. Like the wind, the Spirit can come from anywhere. It's not limited to a specific place or time or people. Like the wind, the Spirit goes where it will. We cannot predict its intent or its goal or its end. All we can do is open ourselves to the possibility. And I think by doing so, we experience the Spirit's presence, glory, and action in our lives.